0: Hi in the hills of Happy Valley, Oregon. Welcome to Until We Meet Again. Brought to you by the kind support of Cornerstone Funeral Services in Boring, Oregon, and friends like you. I'm Elizabeth Fournier. This radio broadcast is an expression of our common ground of mortality. Because after all, we are all in this together. Despite amazing advances in medical science and technology, the mortality rate for human beings stands at 100%. It's a fact. All of us are going to die someday. Yet, in the face of this statistical reality, death still manages to come as a shock, leaving rattled relatives, friends, and co-workers wondering what to say and do in response. Welcome to the maiden voyage of Until We Meet Again, a weekly half-hour conversation dedicated to conscientiously discussing a wide range of talking points regarding many facets of death. Our goal is to educate in a gentle and spirit-filled manner with guest interviews and reverent discussions right here every Thursday afternoon at 2 p.m. on KKPZAM, The Truth. Today's reading is edited and adapted from the writing of Ecclesiastes 3, 1-4. There is an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event under heaven. A time to give birth and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to wear down and a time to build up a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance. Death has many gifts to offer us. The gift of living our best lives while we face death. The gift of finding meaning in our lives. The gift of having the opportunity to tell loved ones, I'm sorry, I forgive you, thank you, and goodbye. My guest today is Kristen Applegate, fondly known as Nurse Apple. She's a hospice nurse, an end-of-life death doula, the creator of Applegate Overcrossings and an urban chicken whisperer. So let's dive right in. I think the most responsible thing to do is talk about what the heck is an urban chicken whisperer.
1: (laughs) Thanks, Elizabeth. Um, Yeah, that's always the question that comes up early. It's uh, something I put in the tagline of my email years ago, and I left it. And it's great because if I'm doing a business email, I tend to leave it on there. And it gives strangers an idea that maybe there's something a little quirky or perhaps lighthearted about me. Um, The background is that I started raising chickens in my inner Southeast Portland backyard, about nine years ago, and I had one really special chicken named Marigold who I just lost last year. And she became my therapy chicken. And with all the hard work I've done as a nurse, um, I would always come home, and this bird was sort of like a cat. She loved to be held, and she was my girl. So that's the chicken whisperer.
0: So you have a passion for chickens, and I, I met Marigold. She's very, she was just very sweet, lovely, and really, really beautiful bird. And you have many, many selfies with her. I so do. <laughs> that's awesome to see. You love your chickens, your puppy dogs, you like eating meals off pottery made by your husband, and you also have a passion for people, especially those who are slipping through our grasp and sooner leaving this planet. So when I met you, you were working as an oncology nurse, and you had that God-given gift of the full heart space to care for the dying and their families. And now you found your way to give service as a hospice nurse. I really find hospice nurses to be angels on earth. Just the presence, what they do, the time commitment. So you're in a home and you're really there going through the whole process with the family, aren't you?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Hospice care can take place in a different setting like an acute care facility or hospital, but more often than not, the goal is to have it in a person's private home so they can um, end their life however many days, weeks, or months that may be in their home surrounded by their loved ones.
0: So with hospice, that ultimately means somebody has to have, is it a six-month or less diagnosis to live?
1: Yeah, Medicare, unfortunately, regulates this whole business as far as the paperwork end of things. So the way that gets determined is if a a diagnosis indicates that most likely without aggressive, preventative, or curative treatment, a person is likely to live not longer than six months, they're um, eligible for Medicare services and therefore hospice services.
0: So can you give us any insight after doing this for so long, what family members that are using hospice, can they make the process any easier for themselves? Any
1: tips, tricks, anything you can hand out to us? Oh, absolutely. I think the key to this is starting these conversations early before there's ever a problem. Um, Many times when I go into a home and I'm admitting a patient and their family to hospice services for the first time... One of my first questions, just to sort of get a baseline of what their understanding is, is have they had any deaths in their family? Have they ever specifically worked with hospice before? And often, either the answer is no, or they say, oh yes, so-and-so in our family had hospice, but they were only on it for a couple days or two weeks. And honestly, as an end-of-life caregiver, that to me is very sad because the hospice work that can take place if we get someone in earlier, if we have that six months or so, we're really focusing on quality of life. And it's not just about the death. It's really about the, the living that takes place until the death is, is ready to come about.
0: So it's also making the person who passed away comfortable Physically, but emotionally, I imagine making the people who are there,
1: being the caretakers, the loved ones, the family, making them comfortable too. Absolutely. You know, and often we just don't, as our culture, we don't really tend to talk about death. But I find that when we do start having these conversations... People, um, it becomes empowering for them. It becomes less scary when people talk about it and um, have a safe um, and accepting and a non judgmental place to ask questions. So, if your fears are addressed, sometimes you have a better understanding of the things that might happen and you end up heading into the whole situation with clarity and not as much fear.
0: Yeah, I think the fear of the unknown is really something which happens to a lot of people. And I find people who don't have any sort of a faith system, that's it. Somebody passed away and there's that, oh, I should have or I could have or I would have, rather than thinking, well, you know, things will be okay. There is going to be something down the road that's going to happen here. Do you find a difference too when you are taking care of families end of life who have a faith structure or not?
1: Yeah. I mean, and I think that's a question that comes up when I'm working, um, when I'm doing an intake with a new family, um, I do a whole lot of what we call psychosocial assessment. So a lot of that involves involves um, cultural differences. Um, which can involve anything from food and music and rituals. And a family's spiritual base is part of that questioning too. And a lot of people, I think, you know, if it's very clear-cut for a certain family what their faith base is, they have no problem answering that question. Some people kind of hem and haw about it. But if I talk about... For instance, the hospice chaplains that I've met—they're non-denominational, and so they can work with anyone of any different faith. And a lot of it has to do with just asking questions. And um, spirituality, even within a, a pers- you know a very specific faith, it's still individual for the person. And when we allow people to maybe not have such a rigid uh, expectation about what, what is being asked of them and just allow them to explore, I think it really helps people open up. But yeah, having some kind of recognition of the importance of their spiritual life is, is very helpful at end of life.
0: You have completed the end of life death doula training. Mm-hmm. I think this is a term that... People don't know about. When I try to explain it to somebody, I say, so you know when a baby is born, you might have a birth midwife and then maybe they're called a birth doula because it's somebody coming into the world. I say a death midwife or a death doula or end of life doula is because somebody is heading out of the world. I have a feeling you probably can give more of an eloquent definition of this.
1: Yeah, it is a very confusing term. And it's definitely one that's becoming used more into practice. And we're kind of describing something that was, you know, originally hundreds of years old. And we're trying to put it into a context that makes sense now, and the words doula and midwife, just as you said, are the only words that people have any understanding of that would, you can kind of brace it as as, uh, bookends, beginning of life and end of life. Um, and, and the word doula, though, it, it can be very off putting. People think, oh, so you, you deal with dying babies. And well, unfortunately, occasionally, yes, that, but more often than not, I personally, I'm a, a geriatric advocate. I work a lot with veterans. Most of the people I work with are adults. Um, but yeah, it really is about a doula or a midwife is someone who is accompanying on a journey. So it's just someone who is there with you through a passage. So if we're able to take that death piece and look at it as a passage and a situation that's happening, um, and the doula is more of a guide, there's a lot of other words, I think, that really sort of capture the role better. Um, But yeah, we're we're having troubles finding ways to describe it to people to make it approachable and not off-putting.
0: Well, you, my darling, are fantastic for this. I think this is just really such a calling for you, and you're really impassioned by it. So you've created Applegate Overcrossings. What's that all about?
1: (laughs) Um, So um, as you said at the beginning, um, when we met um, a year or two ago, I was an oncology nurse. And um, actually, the whole reason I became um, a nurse, period, um, was my goal was to become a hospice nurse. Um, and that experience was based on um, a couple different deaths that I was um, very much involved with of grandparents earlier in my life. And um, that was actually also where I first learned the, t- the term death midwife, and I was fascinated by it. And 25 years ago, I heard that term for the first time. Um, when I eventually became a nurse, it's a second career for me, um, the feedback that I got... Was that hospice nurses or organizations that hire hospice nurses really don't want brand new graduates? They really want folks with um, some kind of hospital based experience. And um, the fields of oncology and psychology, psychiatric nursing, are two really good fields to help kind of get into this really intense field of nursing. So I ended up doing that for a decade. Um, and worked with lots of different cancer patients, which just sometimes also involves end-of-life care. So Applegate Overcrossings is the name of my private doula or death midwife company. Um, I am a hospice nurse with a private um, company, and I keep those roles very separate. When I'm a nurse, I'm a nurse, but when I'm a doula, I'm a very different thing. And so that's really important differentiation. I don't do medical work as a doula. And the overcrossings piece, um, as I left oncology nursing and got more involved with the death and dying community, so people like you, some morticians, uh, doulas, chaplains, um, I found that there's a lot of um, desire for us to connect and speak with one another and share um, information sources about things like green burial or literature. Um And so this was an idea that I came up with just to have basically open houses that they are open to the public, but they're definitely geared more towards, you know, people that some are some way involved with end of life care and want to connect with one another. So
0: you're open to people finding you on Facebook? Yes. Under Applegate Overcrossings, find out about your private practice based in Portland, but also the fact that you really are a champion of death Education and outreach and advocacy in the Portland area, and you want people to feel free to
1: gather. Yeah, absolutely. Since it's a, a, a kind of a, a growing field, especially the doula midwife portion of it. Um, I like to really connect I I don't I can honestly say that I don't have an ego built in into it Um, I have several really close friends that are also doulas and also just kind of getting their businesses started and so I would never have I have in in fact you know if, if if I didn't feel that I was able to serve a certain family I've connected them with other folks that might be able to help them I really feel that we can grow and serve the community best if we work together
0: Okay, so give me some meat and potatoes here. <laughs> Tell me
1: what a doula does and what a doula doesn't do. Excellent question. So again, a, a doula is is not a nurse. Um, a doula can be a layperson who has, for whatever life experience, been called to this sort of end-of-life care. Um, some doulas are also trained as social workers, chaplains, retired physicians. Um, <clears throat> but what we do, we're... Um, a collaborative group. We work with all aspects of of end-of-life support in a non-medical way. So we connect families with hospice, hospitals, mortuaries, but we also do a lot about helping people make choices and help them make decisions about what they might want their actual death to look like, things that a hospice group wouldn't have time to talk about. And I'm talking about details like yeah, I want to die at home, but where in my home do I want to die? Mm, do mm. I want to work on a legacy project with my um, children or grandchildren? Are there certain types of things that will be important to me, certain types of music that I want played? So we can really help, um, again, if we get to meet with a family earlier on before someone is actively dying, we can really help create an experience so that they feel like you know, they're leaving in a way that they want to leave. So, Legacy Project, give me an example of that. Um, I have seen and heard several different examples of these. Sometimes they can be long scrolls that all kinds of family members will come and draw and paint on. Um, oftentimes they're books that become like a scrapbook. Um, another good example is sometimes when people um, are dying and people are visiting them maybe for the period of the last couple of days or, or weeks, there will be a book or, or pieces of paper set out and people that visit are encouraged to write a poem or draw a picture that is somehow related to their experience with the dying person and then that, that can all be put together. Um, so it can be different art projects. It can be recorded things. Someone might have a, a you know, they want to sit down and record some of their oral history. Um, so that that can be available for friends or relatives later on.
0: So my mind is going here. Now, if a family wanted to come over and they wanted to, let's say, build a casket or paint a casket, I kind of think, well, that's sort of a legacy project because yeah. the person might be placed in that and they would have that with them in their grave space
1: for quite a while.
0: But is that not on the right track here?
1: Oh, it is exactly on the right mm. track. I mean, these days with the amount of um, photojournalism, photo documentation that we can do, um, I think that's that's a perfect example. Yeah.
0: So I have a feeling it's really important that if somebody chooses an end-of-life doula, they interview them, maybe look at writings that they have. Uh, I don't know. Do you think maybe look at their Twitter,
1: Instagram, get to know <laughs> them, have a connection with them? Um, I do think that's important. And, um, again, when I've been dealing with uh, family members of my own at end-of-life and, and with patients, too, I, I really – it's a good time to – to, to cut out the nonsense, social niceties go out the window. There's a lot of times in life where we have to be pleasant to people, even if we're really not feeling it. And if I'm sitting here with you today and I have a cancer diagnosis, and I know that realistically, I've only got two or three months to live, and I'm really not jiving with you, Maybe I'm just going to decide I don't want to spend any more time with you. It's nothing personal, but maybe not. that's not great. And, again, if you have um, someone like me that you meet with, um, a, a person, and ideally a doula would check in with the family after our first meeting and say, hey, how are you feeling about this? Is this feeling like a good fit? And if not, like I said, there's other choices and there's other directions that people can go. But, yeah, I think feeling a connection with a doula is super important because if not now when (laughs) yeah you can't really (laughs) manufacture this it's just like a blind date there's no do-overs
0: oh yeah so super important i think that really does make sense yeah um i think that's really important you say you don't have an ego and that's probably where some of your non-egoness comes in it's nothing personal just what if we're chatting here and we're just talking about how we like to spend our time or you come into someone's house and they have a feeling that, well, gosh, you know, she didn't take her shoes off first or yeah, that's a right. small stuff. But right. maybe there's a way people have a life system set up and you're sort of disrupting it. Their dog hates you right. or whatever.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, a Connection is super important and uh, end of life is not the time to, to fake it
0: yeah, yeah, this isn't the type of thing that we fake it till we make it, right? <laughs> no, it's not, not to be
1: not to be sarcastic, but I think it's a really true no, thing. No, it's not. It's time for hard discussions and uncomfortable discussions, and and it's a time to just really be honest with people. And if things aren't working, it's it's the time to say, "Hey, this isn't working for me." So this job must be, I
0: imagine, taxing on your spiritual life, your soul, personal life. How
1: do you clear your mind and regain your peace? What is your self-care? Oh, good question. Yeah. You know, um, self-care is, is really important, and it's also one of the hardest things. Um, but, but I have learned the, the true value in it. Um, I do a lot, of, a lot of deep breathing. I try and be out in nature a lot. I've also found it's really important to clear my head both before and after I go into a difficult situation. So if I'm driving to a family home, um, I want to stop once I've parked my car, maybe even get out and walk around the block or just sit there. And I wanna really just kind of center myself and get into a place where I'm focused on the task at hand. And same thing when I leave an environment, I really wanna honor the work that I've done And sit with it, and then I want to let it go and move on to something else. Um, In my free time, like we talked about, I'm really just in love with my pets. (laughs) Um, I really enjoy nature. Living in the Pacific Northwest, as you know, just gives us all kinds of great opportunities. Um, I've been getting into yoga and things like that. Um, I do a lot of reading. I try and not watch a lot of TV, and I try and not watch the news because distractions. I I try and live my life in a way where I'm focusing on things that I can do something about. And so I try and put aside my my best self-care is not spending too much time on things that I can't do anything about.
0: I don't watch the news at all. And being a mortician, I stay away from everything negative. I don't watch sad stories human abuse, pet abuse, um, all the shootings, killings, muggings. I think, gosh, this is my day-to-day life, finding out about somebody who has lost their life and the family who are struggling and dealing with it. So I can't have any more negative or sad images in my life. Um, That even goes to talking necessarily about politics and what's going on and getting angry or having any feel or any reaction to a lot of things. I realize that things are going to be good and bad. There's a yin and yang. That's all there. And just like the Ecclesiastes, everything under the sun, and there's a time for everything, I do find the older I get, also the more years I spend in my profession – keeping the positivity of mind is extremely, extremely important. So you do a lot of reading. Mm -hmm. I know that you have a big, thick stack of end of life books, (laughs) and that you're trying to find out more education and read memoirs and do different things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, You also have
1: an end of life reading group. Is that sort of a way to say that? Yeah, it's a new thing that that I just started this year. Um, When I first graduated from nursing school, I actually, it was so great to not be bogged down by specific studies all the time. I I started up um, a a book club um, and I nursed it along for no pun intended. (laughs) Love it. (laughs) For about eight years. And we read everything under the sun fiction, nonfiction, um, poetry. And um, it was really hard, I, you know, everyone I know, regardless of whether they're retired or have little kids at home, everyone has a really busy schedule. And it was really hard to get people pinned down and have people, f- you know, find a time for people to meet. And so what I've come up with, I call it the the anti-book group. It's actually a book-sharing opportunity. So I've amassed this huge library of books somehow related to end-of-life care. Some of them are nursing books, like spiritual care and nursing. Um, Some of them are essays and stories um, about, you know, stories passed down from our grandparents. I also like to collect children's books that in some way deal with loss, grief, passing, passages. Um, So what I've decided to do, again, when I do meet with end-of-life folks in social settings, we never seem to have enough time to talk about things. So what I've started to do is uh, gather people together where I can open up my library and then invite people to come, look through my library, ask questions, and then they can bring books that they are reading or maybe some poetry or an article that they read they can you know bring in we can make copies of it so that way no one's feeling like oh my gosh I have to read this 500 page book by next Tuesday I don't want it to be a drag (laughs) Um, everything I do with my end-of-life education I want it to be exciting and fulfilling and invigorating
0: Yeah, it takes a village. It's that idea
1: of it takes a village to raise a child. It takes
0: a village to help somebody when they're passing away. And then for the end-of-life death care people, it takes a village to really keep each other grounded, keep the education going, and just be there in support. So what kind of folks do come to these? You've mentioned before you have other friends who are morticians, end-of-life people. What do people learn when they come to your overcrossing groups? Um, You
1: know... Let's see. Other people that come are our neighbors, maybe that um, oftentimes it does revolve around elder care. So people that I know either have recently lost a parent are doing in that elder care period of time where they're looking at what end of life looks like over longer periods. Um, I I happen to be a Quaker, so a lot of my Quaker group, um, they're very into education. And so especially if we do something that has something to do with music around end of life or environmental, green burial stuff, um, people are coming, you know, if there is a specific topic, people are coming, um, the feedback I've gotten, they're coming for the community, Of people that aren't afraid to talk about difficult subjects and know that it'll be a non threatening, non judgmental conversation. And then we usually just pick up really fascinating conversations about literature, about music, about environmental um, advances with burial practices and cremation. And I guess education, right? right? Yeah. And support and everything. Just like
0: you as a hospice nurse, you as an end of life doula you give support you give education you give your time that's ultimately what you're getting together and giving each other yeah okay so if somebody is interested in having an end of life doula Mm
1: -hmm.
0: um, they've heard something on this show that speaks to them they want to get to know you more how do people
1: get a hold of you Um, I currently, um, my website is not yet up and running. Um, I am on Facebook under Applegate Overcrossings, but I know a lot of people do not use Facebook, which I actually encourage because, it's, yeah, for lots of reasons. Um, I use good old-fashioned phone and email. Oh. Um, and I can either give that verbally or if there's a way, Elizabeth, you have of um, attaching it somewhere. Throw it out there. Somebody might be thinking, I've okay. got a question. Okay, phone number 503-444-1898. The email is Applegate Overcrossings at gmail.com. And if you're looking on Facebook, Applegate
0: is one word, overcrossings is one word, Apple Applegate, and yes, she has red hair. (laughs) You've been listening to KKPZ, 1330 AM, The Truth. Thank you to my wonderful guest, Kristen Nurse Apple Applegate. And until we meet again next week, be excellent to each other.